Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. If you're watching this on video, I appreciate the eyeballs as well. Now, today, I'm super excited, like super excited, because I got this guy. I've been reading this content for quite a while. Follow him a little bit, especially when he kind of went off and did his own thing. We'll talk about that. But please help me welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Matt Dixon. How you doing, Matt? Victor, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing it. I'm doing fine, man. Super excited about this conversation. We want to talk about your new book, but before we launch into that, give the folks here a, a one minute. Don't be bashful. Don't hold back. Your one minute. Who is Matt Dixon and why you're a badass? <laughs> well, I don't. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I like to think of a badass. I'm like, um, but I don't think I'm a badass as badass. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I'm a so I'm a sales researcher um, uh, by trade. I. Uh, spent most of my career studying salespeople, studying changes in customer buying behavior. Um, and when we find something interesting, putting that work out there in the market for others to consume. So uh, in the past, I was um, part of the team that produced the the Challenger sale, um, along with Brent Adamson, my my former team at CEB, the Challenger customer. Also spent a, a good chunk of time um, studying customer service and customer experience. So what happens after the sale? Uh, is is done. And uh, we wrote a book called The Effortless Experience, introduced a concept called the customer effort score out there. So kind of wear two hats. I'm a student of sales and, and I've kind of um, also spent time studying customer experience as well. But but I'm a researcher by trade. So I'm not, you know, uh, so many of the folks I talk to, like yourself, um, have spent careers uh, selling, leading sales teams, building sales organizations. That's not, that's not what I do, but I, I try to add value by bringing data and research and analytics to help inform the conversation so that people like you can go, you know, <laughs> drive some of these changes out of the market. I think I think that's what I love about your work. And I first came across, obviously, uh, your work with the Challenger sale, yep. which I'm sure that was an interesting uh, period of time back. And I think you released in December of 2011. Yeah, so I'm that's not right. wrong. That's right. And yeah. I, I, you know, that, that book caused some ripples in the market a little bit. Yeah. You know, at that time <laughs> it was like, you know, 57% into the buying cycle. Uh, relationship salespeople don't do as well as, you know, yeah. the challenger and people are like, what relationships don't matter. And you yeah, guys, really went out popular. Of, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you guys went out of your way to explain, wait a minute, everybody has a little bit of all of these and these change yeah, over yeah, time, yeah. you know, that type yeah. of thing, but everybody was so indignant. And what I love about the challenger sale was as, as an engineer nerd myself, I love the research and the back, you know, yeah. the studies that you guys have done. And so you have a new book called the jolt that coming out yeah. in September. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of like step back because, and, and I want to present a, because you, pre you presented a progression of how this came about. So, yeah. so give me the, like, like what was the genesis for this book and why did you think it was necessary to really, you know, pull all this content together and actually just launch this book? Yeah, there were, I would say there were two things that drove the book. I think the first thing was something we've been monitoring uh, for a long time. And I think it's something you've talked about. It's something that uh, Brent uh, Adamson, my co-author and challengers, talked about. A lot of people have talked about this problem. And it's one of these things, just like that you mentioned the 57% data point from Challenger, like customers out there learning on their own. Or in Challenger Customer, we talked about this problem of consensus buying. Like That, that was like the snowball that just kept building. It's like more and more people showing up at the buying committee. Or in Challenger, it's like 
getting boxed out in the buying journey and our customer affords forcing us to compete on price. And having said they've done all their research and they already know what they need, puts us in a tough spot. So the problem that we've been tracking over the past few years has been this problem of no decision losses, which I think has always been a problem in sales, but, but we think, and we argue in the book, is it actually has gotten worse and is likely to get worse for, for reasons beyond any of our control. But th- we're talking about the, the deals that, you know, where the customer says they want to move forward, they agree to like depart from their status quo, they love us as a supplier, we've already, we, we've beaten the competition kind of intellectually with the customer, but they never actually consummate the deal. You know, they go dark on us, they go radio silent, they start ghosting us, they start kicking a can way down the road, like, let's pick up the conversation next quarter, next year. This problem, we found our research, I'll pull one data point forward, that it's today, it's about 40 to 60% of the average seller's total uh, opportunities that they pursue fall into that no decision loss category. So if you multiply that out, now, you know, think about it, for, as a, if you're a salesperson listening to the show, you get 40, you know, 40 to 60% of your time is going against opportunities where they just end up in a wasteland of no decision. You don't lose to the competition, you lose to the customer doing nothing. And then you multiply that across the team, or if you're a CRO or CSO across the sales organization, it is a huge hit to our productivity. And then, so that was a, that's a problem we were tracking for some time, but you know, um, what, what tipped us over to like, wow, we should study this now was actually um, when March of 2020 rolled around, you know, and the reason is, and I think this is, I jokingly say like, this is the time we were all watching Tiger King and, and learning to bake sourdough bread. <laughs> but it was, you know, for sales, for research nerds like me, you know, I've always been envious of the work that Neil Rackham did and it's been selling, you know, sitting in on 30,000 sales conversations. I could just nev- never get anybody to pay for that research, you know, <laughs> for me to go do that. In like today's dollars, that would be like millions and millions of dollars. But, uh, but what's interesting is we've always had the technology to study sales conversations uh, and uh, natural language processing, uh, automated transcription, machine learning. But the problem is like most of the important sales calls happen in the client's office. So how do you record those? But in March of 2020, everything changed. And suddenly we went to 100% virtual overnight. So that meant all the mundane early on kind of get to know you sales conversations and all the really important sales conversations, the the critical buying committee meetings, the critical um, negotiation uh, conversations all were being recorded or could be recorded. And so we found several dozen companies that were willing to send us their call recordings. And then we use a platform from a company called Tether. They're a um, conversation intelligence company out of Austin, Texas, where actually I worked for a few years and my, my co-author Ted McKenna worked as well. And we said, hey, this is our shot. Like this is the, this is the moment in time where we can study sales in a way it's, it could never be studied before. And by the way, this may be a once in a lifetime opportunity. So so we went out right away. We called it early on. We called it the sales vaccine project, which I know is because we, we said, hey, if, if the scientists are going to come up with a cure, you know, vaccine for COVID, like we got to come up with a vaccine for this problem of no decision. Like, let's get that's, after that's it. Funny. That's funny. Um, we didn't end up calling the book that, but that was kind of the inspiration. But I, what I love about that, by the way, I, I, I want to shame you. I'm going to shame you oh, for, for not including uh, the Challenger book in your progression because, you know, when I look at the... Again, when I look at the landscape of sales, I go back to the 80s. You got spin selling with Neil Rackham, right? Yeah, 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 sure. And it was a big study. I think it was 35,000 calls. They looked at 16 different attributes, something like that. But I really believe that that progression before we hit March 22, uh, 2020 rather, should include the Challenger sale. Because to me, that was the next book. Like that book is like like a marker for me. Yeah. Because that was the next book that actually had some real data behind it. 
some real well, study. I, yeah, I certainly uh, appreciate. I'm honored that you would you would include us in that uh, that set. But I, I think from a research standpoint, I would I would agree. I would say that you know, look, Neil Rackham took. I think, and what's so interesting about this is, um, Victor, I know you're a lot of your listen, listeners are in, are familiar with Moore's law, right? That that processing speed like doubles every, you know. Um, Eighteen months. So I think what's so interesting, if you look at the way sales has been studied, you know, Neil Rackham did the spin selling research back in the '70s, and it was a team of like a dozen people. It took them ten years, thirty thousand sales conversations, several hundred variables they looked at. Fast forward to Challenger, we use more survey based but quantitative research methods. We got to our insights in about um, three or four years. Uh, we had data in the initial set when we wrote the book from 6,000 sellers from about 100 companies. Now there's, we've got data on almost like 250,000 sellers because that research continues. Um, but that was a different approach, right? We, we went out, we asked managers to assess their salespeople. We used more of a quantitative approach. And it was, but it was a pretty big team and it still took us like three or four years. The Jolt research was... Me, my co-author, Ted McKenna, our head of data science at Tether, uh, Tom Shepard, uh, obviously a lot of people behind the scenes at Tether and the machine learning team and the, you know, uh, getting the data and helping us clean the data and stuff like that. But it was a pretty small team and start to finish from when we started to when we wrote the book was like it, two years, um, a much smaller team, 8,300 variables we looked at in two and a half million sales conversations. So I think what you're seeing is this compression in how fast we can get to insight um, with much bigger data sets um, uh, for uh, for sales organizations. By the way, just a side note, how did you get Neil Rackham to do the forward for the challenger sale? I want to go back to that. I've, yeah, sure. I was like, I've been wanting to ask that question. How'd you get him to do that? He doesn't usually do that. No, he, you know, so it was, it was really interesting. Um, it's a funny story, actually. We um, we saw a we saw a YouTube video after the uh, the book had come out yet. We hadn't even, actually, we were just contemplating writing a book. We, we, I think we had just sold our bosses on letting us do it. and um, But we knew we had something interesting with the Challenger research. It, we had written it for our customers at CB, but it kind of gotten out there. We did a couple of blog posts and some things. Like, I don't even think they had podcasts back then, but we we got the word out. And um, we somebody sent us a YouTube video of Neil Rackham. Uh, it was a, a lecture he was giving in Australia and said, oh, he's talking about your research. And there was this part in it where he shared a couple of data points from our study and said, this is really intriguing. And then he, he kind of raised some questions about like, no, I'm not sure about the methodology and whether this is all in the up and up, but you got to admit this is pretty interesting stuff. So we reached out to him, which was mainly like, hey, can like, please don't say like the methodology was dodgy. Like, what the, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> what the like, hell, Neil? What the hell? Like, no, I mean, he didn't say it was dodgy. He was just like, hey, I don't know enough about it. So it might be dodgy. I don't know. If we right, said, right. like, can we just come and see you and like kneel at the throne and like ask, uh, <laughs> show you what we did. So we did that and it, it went from a conversation, which was, and look, he's a, he's a, he's a researcher and he kind of ran us, we brought our quant researcher and he ran us through the ringer for about an hour. And then he, and then I kind of switched gears and, and cause we had mentioned, we we're going to write a book on it. And he goes, you know, I'd be honored to write the forward if you'd like me to, because wow. I think this is a really big deal. And I'm, I'm convinced that this is on the up and up. He, he later said it was so interesting. We sat down in his office and he showed us like a wall full of sales books. And he said he gets like at least one every two weeks or one a month or something. And he's always asked to, Hey, can you write the forward or something like that? And he says, you know, the first thing I usually, or give us a blurb or something. And he said, the first thing I do is I just literally flip through the pages. And if I don't see any bar charts, like I say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then he said, second thing is if I see some bar charts, then I kind of dig a little bit deeper. And is it, you know, what's, did they do their own research? Is this like analytically rigorous? Is it interesting? And he said, there are very, very few things I actually see that, that are very data-based, 
that are analytically interesting based on robust methodology. And he said, even then, I won't put my name on it until I meet the people who. So that's why I accepted your request to come out and visit. And then, then you know, he was he was really tremendous. I mean, he he was the first person to read the manuscript. He gave us a lot of feedback on it, um, which always reflected in the book, and and just gave us a lot of guidance. Having been a guy who's <clears throat> been very successful, taking research, in in turning into something that a salesperson, a sales leader, a manager could do something with. That's, I think, the the really hard part. Actually, yeah. the research is is hard, but it's making it stick and making it resonate and putting a storytelling wrapper around it that is so hard. And he he just, I mean, he literally wrote the book on it. So, um, uh, you know, he just gave us a lot of guidance about how we should think about this. Um, if our goal is not just to do interesting research, but to actually get people to change behavior. Yeah, and what I what I loved about by the way, I, I love that progression, and and so that was the first shaming I wanted to give you uh, <laughs> that you didn't include the challenger sale, and I I also want to highlight to people that I think you know second to the challenger sale, the effortless experience is one of my favorite books. I call it oh, part of my you. golden shelf, man. Oh, you know, thanks. rarely does a book make it to my golden shelf, but those two are <laughs> definitely in there. Jolt is going to be in there, man. It's a great I can book. Get a golden shelf. I don't have one, so clearly yeah, I'm doing yeah. something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it's a fantastic book, The Effortless Experience. I highly suggest people get it. It's a great book. Now let's let's go to the book a little bit because people are going to well, sure. what are they talking about? Okay, so they got all this data. They started analyzing, you know, all these different attributes of two point five million calls. What did you find? Yeah, and so the the big thing was that sixty percent of deals are lost, and the majority of those deals are based on no decision. Yep. Take it from there because then you took it a step further. Something I never thought about. Yeah, we, so um, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you a quick story. And we tell the story in the book, actually. We we had a bit of a, a head scratcher early on, which is um, we found, it was interesting. You know, I think when, look, salespeople are, are familiar with this phenomenon, very familiar, unfortunately, with this phenomenon of no decision losses. And they're also familiar with this, the indicators that your deal is heading towards that wasteland of no decision. And that's when the customer starts to you know waver and waffle and backpedal a bit and you know wring their hands and, you know, uh, get cold feet. And um, I think what we've always taught salespeople is that if that happens, the only possible explanation is that you didn't oh, you didn't beat the customer's status quo. They're still they still prefer what they do today. They may not believe what the, maybe they believe what they do today is good enough, uh, or maybe they just don't believe your solution is a superior alternative, or maybe they just don't believe that the juice is worth the squeeze. Right? Yeah, what we do today is not great. Your solution's better, but. Life is short, and that's a lot of pain, uh, you know, to to go from A to B. So we just choose not to do anything. Now, um, it, what we tell salespeople to do in those moments is go back and, you know, relitigate the status quo, beat the status quo. So, what do you? How do we do it? Well, we use the carrot and the stick. The carrot, we talk about, um, you know, maybe the customer doesn't get how awesome our platform is. Maybe they don't get how great our solution is. So we go back and we try to rearticulate the benefits. We paint a really rosy picture of the ROI projection, how great things will be on the other side. And if that doesn't motivate the customer, we put away the carrot, break out the stick, and we start going to FUD, right? The fear, uncertainty, adapt. So we try to create this burning platform for the customer that they have no choice but to abandon to make them understand what the costs of their inaction would entail, right? Here's what you're going to miss out if you don't move forward. Um, now, what was surprising to us and the head scratcher was this, Victor, is that when we ran the analysis, we found that when, first of all, we found when we identify these markers of like wavering of uh, these sentiments associated with, um, you know, uh, customer, what would later call customer indecision in salespeople, 73% of the time they go back and they hammer the status quo, either by using the carrot or the stick. 
And so usually some combination of the two. We found that that approach actually backfired 84% of the time. And just to be very specific, it w- these salespeople were better off doing nothing when the customer um, uh, showed signs of cold feet than, than breaking out their status quo hammer and treating every indecisive customer like a nail. And it so it backfired 84% of the time, but it was really surprising to us because we couldn't think of any other reason ourselves why the customer would would still uh, not do anything. And why would they take techniques? By the way, many of which we talked about in the Challenger and, and all our other work as well, showing the customer the pain of same and showing them that the pain of same is worse than the pain of change and in breaking the gravitational pull of the status quo. I mean, Challenger is a book about how to do that, but it's so surprising to us to see that it backfires more often than not. And so we were at a loss. Like we had no idea what we just found. We thought like the numerator got flipped with the denominator, like something was wrong with the model. <laughs> we, we just kept running and it kept coming back this way. And uh, we had this meeting, um, uh, we were struggling a little bit and a sales leader who we uh, really respect, she invited us, she said, she knew we were doing this research. Her team actually had participated. So she had sent us their sales calls and she said, let's talk about the research. Maybe being in a pipeline review with us would help you because we talk about no decision losses a lot. So maybe it'll help spur some thinking. And one of her top salespeople was walking the, um, the team, the management team through a deal. And this deal was like, on paper, perfect, right? It was perfect fit. They expressed their intent to move forward. They'd been down selected, like everything looked great. And then the customer started to ghost them and they just stopped showing up for Zoom, stopped showing up for calls, didn't didn't respond to their emails. And they when they did, it was very curt, you know, in their response, like a movie we've seen a million times before in sales. This went on for like six months. And the sales leader said, I think we need to decide, are we fishing or cutting bait here? And so they had a discussion about that. And they decided to cut bait. They said, we can't, we got to spend our time elsewhere. Um, so let's follow up with them in six months or nine months or whatever, just see if they're still alive, but they're out, right? Market has closed loss, but due to no decision. And they did a bit of an autopsy in that call, um, just to see what they could learn from that opportunity. And the head of sales said something that was like the like pivot point where we were just like, I'm going to date myself, Victor. But I, they had a, I had, we had the V8 moment, right? Like, oh, like, why didn't we think of this, right? Um, dated. So, uh, been dated, go ahead. <laughs> no, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, so, I do. So we had the V8 moment. And, and the V8 moment was this. The sales leader said to the seller, who was one of her top sellers, by the way, said, okay, it's lost. It's smart to close off. See what we can learn about this. Let me ask you a question. Do you think we lost this deal uh, or that they made no decision because they were committed to their status quo? They preferred it or because they were indecisive about changing it. And the salesperson said, uh, what do you mean? Those are, aren't those the same? And she goes, nope, they couldn't be more different. And then she started to talk about these two things of like the difference between being wedded to your status quo and just and being committed to leaving the status quo, but yet being indecisive about changing it. And Ted and I were like, you know, that is, that was it. And so we went back to the data and here's what we found. When we, we, we stopped asking the question, what does it take to beat the status quo? And instead, we asked a different question, which is what, what would motivate somebody to do nothing, to choose a path of inaction? Here's what we found. We found that 44% of the deals lost to inaction in our study were because the customer preferred the status quo. They, they either thought they, what they did today was good enough. Um, they didn't think your solution was that big of a, an improvement, or they didn't think the, the change journey was worth it. You know, like, yeah, sure, it would be better, but, you know, life is short and we don't have the resources or time. Um, but 56% of the time, 
they were they were indecisive about changing. It wasn't that they were committed to maintaining it. They were indecisive about changing it. Now, your listeners are probably like, yeah, and what is the difference between those two? So let me tell you, one more, peel back the onion, one more layer. Let me say, well, Matt, I'm going to pause you one because I want people well, to yeah. mentally catch up with what you're saying. Well, yeah. Because what you're saying is, let's go back to the numbers. 40% of the deals you'll win. 60% you won't win. Let's yep. say that that's no decision. What you're saying is that under no decision, it wasn't yep. just simply status quo. That was 44% or something like that, right? Yep. That that's was status right. quo. And then the other 56% was indecision. Two big differences. Status quo means, you know, uh, good enough. I'm happy yep. with what I got. Yep. It's not worth the hassle. As you say, uh, what'd you say about something about it's not worth the juice to squeeze or squeeze the juice? Juice is not <laughs> worth the squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's, funny. that's a funny line. And, and we're realizing it's, and then if you keep beating on that, that's the wrong drum you're beating on because yep. there's another drum called indecision that has yep. nothing to do with, they know they need to change. Yep. They're just having a hard time making a decision. Yep. And the quote out of your book, by the way, that, that I, I quoted it here because it was such a great line, that customer asked the salesperson, does your client prefer the status quo or do they just prefer to not make a decision to change it? Yeah. And yeah. even that hit me like, okay, that's a, that's a strong line. So yeah. really what we're talking about status quo, when somebody says no decision, it's usually status quo or indecision. Yeah. And what the book really drives home is that maybe your past status quo, they know they need to change. They just need help making a decision. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to no. make sure everybody's with us. Such no, a great you conversation. Said it, you said a lot more succinctly than I did. I take more of the, um, do you remember uh, the movie uh, Back to School where Rodney Dangerfield has to take the final exam and the professor's like, I've got one question in 72 parts. That's like, <laughs> that's my answer. You're like, you're, that was a much more concise way to say what I just said. <laughs> no worries, no worries. But go ahead, I'm oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, no, no, you're you're absolutely spot on. So all those four, of those 40 to 60% of deals, also no decision, it further breaks out into, we assumed all of those are because you didn't beat the SAS quo, but it turns out only 44% are because you didn't beat the SAS quo, 56%. Are because you you have another driver something about customer indecision that's holding the deal up. Now the difference between those two is this because I think that still is something that people are like, hold on a second, like what's the difference? What does it mean to be indecisive about changing the status quo? It means three specific things. The first one is the customer doesn't know what option to pick, so they know they need to change. They know they want to work with you, but maybe they don't know what contract length. Maybe they don't know if they should go enterprise wide or or narrow. Maybe they don't know if they need the basic version, the premium version. Maybe they don't know if they need, uh, they want to DIY it or they need the professional services, right? There's so many different configurations, so many bells and whistles, partner integrations, you know, all so many different options we put in front of the customer. And this is them saying, I'm looking at options A, B, C, and D. They all look good. And what if I pick the wrong one? And there's no coming back from that, right? Second big driver of indecision is a lack of information. So this is something, you know, Brent has talked about with the sense-making research, but this is the problem where ironically in a world where we have so much information out there about every use case, every technology, every market opportunity, tons of research that we could consume. This is the customer feeling like I haven't consumed enough and I'm not on a level playing field with the salesperson. I need to be more of an expert. I need to do more homework. The third source of indecision is what we call outcome uncertainty. So this is the customer who may be comfortable with they picked the right option, may also feel like I've done enough research or I'm dealing with a salesperson who's an expert. I don't need to consume all this research, but there's still this nagging voice in the back of their head saying, what if you don't get what you're paying for? And this is a big decision, right? What if this thing goes sideways? And if it goes sideways, heads are going to roll. And you know whose head rolls first? The person whose name is on the contract. So yeah. that that is the, like, I might be left holding the bag concern. So it's those three things. I didn't pick the right thing. I didn't do enough homework. I didn't get enough assurance that this is all going to pan out. Those three things 
and when you think about those, have nothing to do with the status quo. So you could easily have a customer who's saying, Victor, I, I'm, what we do today is horrible. It's leading to like cost leakage. It's, we're exposed from a risk standpoint. No, like we're missing top line growth opportunities. And I'm sold. Like you guys are the best supplier to work with. We want to move forward, yet could still be struggling with, did I make the right choice on options? Did I do enough homework? And do I have any assurance of success and not make a decision for those reasons? Now, when you think about this, what if a salesperson doesn't know that the customer's struggling with that stuff and just goes back and starts hammering the status quo? You must not get how great our platform is. You don't want to be gapped in the market by your competitors. You're losing ground. You told me your customers hate you because of your, you don't have this capability. And you just dial up the pain of same, but they're not concerned about that anymore. They're concerned about something else. Well, then you run a high degree of not just being tone deaf, but actually making things worse because all you're doing is using fear to sell to an already scared customer. But they're scared about something else and you're not addressing it. For some reason, the visual that comes to my head is that you're you're riding a chariot called no decision. You got two horses, one called status quo, one called indecision. And you just keep beating the crap out of status <laughs> quo. And the real problem is indecision's not moving. Right. Yeah. What I loved about the book, Matt, is that is that you put data and more body to what I always called buyer's regret. And you expanded that by talking about the valuation, the information, and the outcome uncertainty. And that's what I loved about the book. And so when people know this now, let's just say that we've we've got these folks listening and watching us to believe that, okay, there's something called indecision that stands us apart from status quo. Yep. This is where you came up with your jolt formula. Yep. And so let's jump into that because I think that's really, that's where you get to the real tactical stuff. Right. There's a like, what, okay, so what, what should we do about this? Um, and uh, what, one thing, well, I'll walk you through these and maybe I'll, I'll walk you through one. We could park on it and have a discussion, but, um, but the, or, or asking questions. But the, uh, the, the highest level thing I would say is, and I think this is the, one of the key findings. And we, we read a lot of like social science research and human psychology and behavioral economics, which I wouldn't wish on any of your listeners, but, um, but we did it for you. So, what we learned was this is like, we all know in sales that people don't like to lose. We know they're wired to avoid loss, like prospect theory, you know, condiment, all that great stuff. Like we know that's why we dial up the FUD because we know our customer doesn't want to miss out. But what we didn't realize until we delved into social science is that the power of, or the, uh, the fear of missing out actually pales in comparison to the customer's fear of messing up. That is actually much more powerful. It's, and this is true in, in human psychology and it's very true of our customers. They're okay with missing out. They are not okay with messing up. If you give the choice and say, either way you're going to lose, pick a path, they will all choose a path of inaction over action. Because what's so powerful is like, I don't want to personally as a customer be culpable or responsible for making the wrong choice or decision that leads to a bad outcome. I'm okay with doing nothing and that leading to a bad outcome. I'm not okay with doing something that leads to a bad outcome. And those two things are not equal in the customer's mind. And so the, the playbook, the Joel playbook, the way I think about this is, as a salesperson, what we're not saying is ignore the status quo. Because the problem is, if you don't beat the status quo, you won't sell anything in sales. And, you know, there's lots of great books and resources and guidance out there in the market about how to do that. You know, Challenger is just one of many examples. But you, you got to be successful. You won't collect 200 bucks and you won't pass go if you don't beat the status quo. You got to give the customer a reason to, to depart from the status quo and move forward with you and go on that change journey. But the next thing you got to do, you need a second playbook. And, and once you beat the status quo, what creeps into the customer's mind is not I really like the status quo. They've left that station. Where they are now is, what if I made the wrong choice? What if I haven't done enough homework? What if I'm going to be left holding the bag? Those drivers of indecision. So you need a playbook for beating the status quo, overcoming indecision. The way I'd summarize is this. B 
beating the status quo is all about showing the customer or dialing up the fear of not purchasing, the cost of inaction. Overcoming indecision is very different. It's about dialing down the fear of purchasing, dealing with that regret you just talked about. And that is a fundamentally different approach, right? Uh, now, we came up, as you said, we came up with this, this framework. And it, part of the reason we did it was because we were trying to think of a, what's a way that's a memorable, kind of sticky, like took a page out of Neil Rackham's book, right? Spin selling. Everyone knows what it stands for. Everyone knows what it means. And so we're trying to do something similar, like what's a framework people, because we had all this data kind of sitting on the table and we sort of bucketing it into four behaviors that we found that high performers uh, use. Uh, the, the J in Jolt, Jolt is an acronym, stands for four behaviors. The J is judge the level of indecision. You, all, you need to know the depth, the breadth, and the intensity of that customer's level of indecision in order to know not, not just how to approach and engage them and get them over the hump, but also how to forecast them and, you know, in some cases, whether to even spend time on them or whether to fire, fire them, disqualify them out of your pipeline. One of the things we found in the research is that 87% of opportunities in our study had either moderate customers who had moderate or high levels of indecision. In other words, the decisive customers are the exception, not the rule. So there's nowhere to hide here. As salespeople, we got to be assessing a client and an opportunity, not just on their ability to buy all the stuff we know to look for, use case fit, industry attractiveness, company dynamics. You know, did we teach them to value something only we could do, build consensus? Do we have a mobilizer? All that good stuff is very important. But it's not just qualifying, disqualifying on the ability to buy. We've got to now qualify and disqualify on the ability to decide. And that's a very different approach for salespeople. So the J is all about equipping salespeople with that, that diagnostic set, things to listen for, powerful requests and questions to ask to, to elicit that response to the customer so we can tag them around their level of indecision. Because it may be that they looks great on paper, but they're never actually going to pull the trigger on this. And it, as a salesperson, you can't afford to chase garbage trucks. Right. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. So I'll let, me, I'll let you go through all four of them very quickly. Of course, I've been yeah, enjoying the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So the O, the O is offering your recommendation. So look, choice is a great thing uh, in sales. We know that. We know, you know, you want to, you want to seem eminently configurable, like a robust product roadmap, lots of partner integrations, all these bells and whistles. Like you let a thousand flowers bloom and it looks great in marketing. It even kind of sounds great early on where customers ask us questions and say, yeah, we can do that. In fact, let me show you that. And the customer's like, wow, this is amazing. Like their just mind is blown about all the things we can do. But what we also know from the social science is that the more you, you expand the number of choices, the less likely the customers choose anything. And so what we found high performers do, now let me actually back up, what average performers do when the customer's like A, B, C, and D, they all agree. What most of us do is we rely on our needs diagnosis skills to try to get the customer to figure out for themselves what the right choice is. I kind of liken this to the doctor. I, I've uh, had some uh, surgery recently on a joint. And, and when I asked the doctor a few months ago, like, hey, doc, what should I do? And he's like, well, there's PT and we could do medication or we could operate. And I'm like, well, what would you do? And he's like, there's medication, there's PT, or we could operate. You know, and it's like, right, what's important to you? And I'm like, I don't know, doc. That's why I'm asking you, right? Um, so so most, most of us do that. Like we, we don't want to be, we don't want to steer the customer in the wrong direction. And we run, the, we fear telling them like, I really like option C. And the customer's thinking, oh, that's weird because we were leaning towards A. And now it's like, well, now you're at, at, at odds with the customer. 
So most of us lean on diagnosis, but what the best salespeople do is they actually stop asking what the customer, customer what they want to buy and start telling them what they should buy. And they do it in a very specific way. Um, it's they, they steer them to the right decision, forget all the other options. This is the right choice. And they put their personal seal of approval on it. This is the one I recommend that my customers go with. Or people like you get a lot of value out of this. And here's why. So they're trying to go from lots of options down to the only one you should consider. Forget the other ones because they know if I just keep putting it back on the customer, there's a good chance they'll make no decision whatsoever because they'll fear that future regret of making the wrong choice. So that's our, that's our O, offering the recommendation. The L. By the way, yep. before you go, I, I said I sure. wouldn't interrupt you, but I just want to highlight this. Uh, on the offering recommendation, you find some, you found some interesting data and yeah. actually recommending versus not recommending with, oh, yeah. in terms of low and high performers. Just yeah. speak to the data a little bit on that one. Yeah. Um, I, so uh, the data point I don't have in front of me, but it was a huge difference. Like, uh, like you may have it in front of you, but <laughs> it's a orders of magnitude difference. If, so when we found that what most sales yeah, people do- 44, the difference was 144% yeah, okay, between a rea reactive guidance versus proactive guidance. Uh, the yeah. delta was 144%. Yeah. So 145% delta. So what that's speaking to specifically is when you're, most salespeople will diagnose without coupling the diagnosis with a recommendation. Um, but what your high performers do is they diagnose and they recommend. So they, they certainly are, you know, look, they, these skills we've learned over the years around these diagnosis is very important and super valuable in sales, um, but they always couple it with that recommendation. And when you do that, there's a 145% delta just in win rate uh, level by, you know, the, through those two different approaches when you isolate them. That was an aha moment, by the way. That was an aha moment, you know, because I, I tried to really combine that with well, what Brett Adamson talks about in sense making, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you yeah. got to be careful. You don't want to tell them what to do. Yeah. But if you can, I mean, how would you reconcile those two? Because even I had to go, well, how does that work? Because if yeah, you look you know, at the sense, go ahead. I wasn't, so I wasn't, I am no, not an expert on uh, sense making, but it, but slightly different. What Here's the thing I would say about sense making, which I think is great, great research, just from what I've consumed from, from an outsider perspective. Um, is sense making where it fits specifically actually is around the L on the the amount of information out there. Okay. It's specifically about content, right? And about about information. Remember, the second source of indecision was I haven't done enough homework. And sense making deals specifically with that problem. Now, of course, we know um, indecision is actually much bigger than just I. There's too much information out there. Um, but you're you're asking a really good question, which is they found in that in their research that you know if you will tellers uh, don't perform as well as sense makers. And I think what we found, so we found a little bit different, um, but remember, we found this specifically with respect to options, not about information, but about options. I have all these options, they all look great. And we found is really powerful is when a salesperson comes in and actually ships from asking to telling, and, but they don't do it in a Victor do this, but rather right. in a Victor, you know, people like you are really happy with this configuration. And I know everything else looks great. And we can expand it later, but I just want to be a good steward of, of your resources and your budget and your time and tell you, I think you're going to be really happy with this option. That's different from go do this. You know, in the same way we talk about in Challenger, it's not about being rude and aggressive or obnoxious. That's like the sixth profile we call the jerk. This is about being empathetic and professional, but still bringing new ideas that challenge the way our customer thinks. So, so I think we've got to be careful. We use telling as a shorthand, but the way you're doing it is actually quite empathetic. And it's, it's a personal seal of approval we're putting on the choice. But our goal here is I will never sell anything if you're looking at A, B, C, and D and you think they're all the same and they're all equally valuable. 
the only way we will make progress. And if I ask you to make the decision, you won't know. And you're worried about the future regret of having chosen the wrong thing. So the personal seal approval clarifies the decision. And you know what it also does is it shifts a little bit of blame from you to me, right? Correct. I'm telling you this is what you should go do. So. And, and this is why that during the, I'll just say, offer the recommendation phase of the JILT yeah. formula is that you have to position yourself as a subject matter expert in what you say, what you do, what you show off. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? You know where that really... so. So that is 100% true across, actually, the next two things I'll talk about are 100% true for all of the, it's, it's probably true in sales in general, but certainly true in overcoming indecision. But where we talk about that subject matter expertise is around the L. So the L was limiting the expiration. This is where I see the most overlap between like sense making and what we've, we've written about. By so, the way, I'm just going to, I'm just going to highlight this, pay attention because this is my favorite part of the whole okay. formula. Okay. Which cool. is because you were bold. I mean, you were you, you and McKenna were bold in this book. You know what I mean? When you got to this part about saying, no, nah, I'm not going to give you this. I, <laughs> I wrote down, I had some of your scripts and I'm like, man, they're kind of, they're kind of rough. And what I, and I <laughs> before you, before, but rough in a good way, because yeah. what I love about your study, and again, I don't want to be too much of a sycophant here because I really like your stuff, your content is that you really have, and why this book stands apart from many others is what you said earlier. You got the research data, which I think is fantastic. Uh, you also have the behavioral science piece behind our social science, as you call it. But then there's actually the tactical stuff. Right. And when you got when you got to the L, which is again limiting the exploration, you really got tactical. And I yeah. was like, thank you. You know, you took the data <laughs> and you grounded you, you took wait, here it comes. Here's the pun. You took the data and you tethered it to something I could use. Oh man. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Oh, so go I ahead. Let's, talk about, let's talk about limiting the exploration. He said it and he's not getting paid to say it either, which is the, <laughs> okay. So, so L limiting the exploration. So this was the, I, I agree with you. Actually, I think this is the, probably the edgiest of all of, of all of them, right? Like Very edgy, judging edgy. the level of indecision, not confrontational. <laughs> like offering recommendation, maybe a little bit, but L where you're selling to the customer, you don't, you don't need that. Now, here's the thing. The last time I checked, Jedi mind tricks don't work in sales. So it's telling the customer, like, you don't need to read that white paper. Like, you don't need yeah. to see the Gardner Magic Quad. <laughs> That's not the report you're looking for. It doesn't work. Like, I tell you, we're, we're not there yet, but we're, we've, we've Jedi mind, we can Jedi mind trick our way to victory. So how do we do it? How do you get a customer who, left to their own devices, will want to consume information until the cows come home? How do you get them to stop? So there's two keys to getting this right. And by the way, again, these two things are, I think are true for all the pillars, but where they really matter is earning the right to tell the customer that additional white paper, that extra reference call, that additional demo is not really worth your time. Um, now, how do you earn the right to do that? Because just saying that, if you haven't done these next two things, the customer will laugh you out of the room and say like, well, thank you for your opinion. I'm going to wait till that Gardner Magic Quadrant report comes out because clearly you don't want me to read it, right? Now, the two things we got to do are one, we've got to overcome what's called the agency dilemma in sales. The agency dilemma at the end of the day is the fact that the customer feels at an information disadvantage uh, to us as, as a salesperson, because they are, because we know more about our, we know where the bodies are buried. We know what works and what doesn't work. We know all the customers who love us and all the customers who don't like us. Uh, we know what our competitors do better than we do. We know what the customer should buy and the stuff that's kind of a waste of money and they shouldn't buy. But the agency dilemma speaks to this thing that every salesperson struggles with, which is, I feel like you as a salesperson are going to try to sell me more than I need. You're going to try to sell me the premium when really the basic version would be fine. You're going to tell me to go enterprise-wide when what we should do is really start with a small pilot. You're going to tell me to add this bell or whistle, which you know deep down is a total waste of money. And so overcoming the agency dilemma is all about building that trust, right? So it's sometimes an overused word in sales, but the reason we do it 
is because of this agency dilemma that are customer that that exists between the salesperson and the customer. Now, how do we do it? And this is where we get really tactical. Say, say Matt, I wanted to ask you before you get into the actual sure. tactic, the because because I you know what again when I read that part I was like, thank you again. It was one of those you call it the agency dilemma. I just called it always information asymmetry where yeah. Yeah. The other person doesn't know as much. You, the salesperson yep. knows too much. You don't know enough. Almost like yep. buying insurance, I think is the perfect 100%. example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's how do you, you know, close that gap between what they know and what you know. And I yeah. always talk about you got to simplify language or at least begin to educate. Very challenger, like, right? Educate your client, bring them up to that level. Yeah. So I wanted to highlight that for people that, because in sales, we don't talk about that enough. That, that's a problem where the customer it, it doesn't is. feel like they know enough to make a buying decision. Yeah, no, you're you're 100 right. It's a problem. It's always been there in sales, and the, and we know the best salespeople are very good at overcoming it. Just to get really tactical, we found a few techniques that high performers use in these sales conversations to to basically break through that agency dilemma to show the customer you're not dealing with somebody who's trying to take you for a ride and sell, oversell you and put one over on you. You're dealing with somebody who's who's actually got your best interests in mind. Those moments were moments where we told the customer what they shouldn't buy, even amongst our options. Right? I don't. I love. I, yeah, we'd love to sell you that, but I got to tell you, it's not really a great spend of your resources. Spend your money somewhere else. Like just telling them to start smaller than maybe they want to start. Like, look, the customer's going to be like, they're going to, they're going to, their eyes get bigger than their stomachs. They want to go enterprise wide. And you know, starting small is actually the better choice for you and for them because you'll sell the deal faster. It'll put less pressure on them. It, it earns you the right. And, and when you say that stuff, it's like, oh, like I don't need to spend a million dollars. We can start with a hundred thousand dollar you know, deploy in one business unit and then go from there. Or how about this one, Victor, is admitting when your competitor is actually better at something the customer's talking about than you are. They say, you know what? We haven't chosen to deploy our resources there. I got to tell you, these guys do a much better job in that. And if that's the most important thing for you in this solution, I'd be happy to put you in touch with them. I mean, that's a gutsy move, right? But that what that does is it sets the stage for like, oh, you're not trying to pull one over on me. Now, that that's the first thing you got to do. The second thing you got to do is you got to be an expert. Now, um, what does that mean when we get down to in tactical terms? So a few things we found. One, high performers were much more likely to run their own demos. They were much less likely to call other subject matter experts on their side into the sales conversation. They didn't show up with the clown car of experts. And when they did show up, because look, they also didn't make it up. They didn't fake it. If they didn't know the answer, they would bring an expert on. But what the way they orchestrated the conversation was designed very purposefully. So it wasn't like, Hey, I'm bringing on Victor. Victor's our head of engineering. Victor, take it away. By the way, you know what? Victor hates that because Victor's not the salesperson I am. It's not his job. And he hates when I just punt to him. And by the but what high performers know is that moment is devastating for you as a salesperson because it sends the, the customer the message that you are just a glorified admin whose only value is I, you can get Victor on the phone. But what I would, from a high performer, what I'm going to do is say, Victor, customers got some in-depth questions about our platform. I'm a little bit out of my depth. I need to bring you on, but let's roadmap this because what I want you to do is answer this question and take no more than 10 minutes to do it and then hand it back to me. I've got to have the customer see me as the expert here. Right. You know, I can't get delegated down to the person I sound like, right? If I sound like a glorified admin, that's who that's now who I'm dealing with. So once we do those things, so well, actually, let me let me say one other thing. So it's that stuff, but there's also there was another technique we talked about in the book, which is um anticipating needs and objections. So the Average performers, so objections happen a lot in sales. We know that. Uh, average performers don't actually rebut 100% of the objections, which was maybe, I would say, sort of surprising, but more depressing to find in the data. And I think their belief is, I don't know how to answer that question. If I just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Like I'll just, it's like Pandora's box. I don't want to open it. 
high performers address 100% of objections that are raised, but they do a lot more than that. They look for signs of implicit non-acceptance. So that might be the difference between you asking me, hey, Matt, have I answered your question? And me saying, absolutely, Victor, you nailed it. Let's keep going. Or me saying, yeah, I guess so. Those two things are night and day. And what we found in the calls is that when high performers sense that disturbance of the force, they stop the conversation, they dig deeper, and they try to understand what's going on. Average performers, when they hear, yeah, I guess so, they're like, permission to keep going, <laughs> you know? Right, so right. they just keep going. They ignore it and they they steamroll it. High performers will also think one step ahead of the customer. So they will think not just about the objection you raised, but the one you didn't raise. And when mm. they do stuff like that, it it gets it gives the customer the sense that this person is really dialed in the conversation. They're hanging on not just what I'm saying, but the way I'm saying it. And they've sold this to people just like me before because they knew the question I was I hadn't asked yet, but I was going to ask, right? And I'm really dealing with experts. So when we do those things. We establish the trust. We establish the credibility and the expertise. What does it earn us the right to do? It earns us the right to tell the customer when they ask for the fifth demo, you know, I don't think that's a great use of your time. And and here's why. And I think there's another way to address that concern. Or is that really what you're looking for here? You need a third reference call because most customers only do one or two. I want to be a good steward of our customer's time. And and if you need a third one, great. But tell me what you think you're going to hear in that reference call that is going to be different from what you heard in the other two. Yeah, I, Let's I really love that. get under what's going on here, right? I love that in the book. And just to do a quick summary of what you did, I, I love the, the downselling to build uh, trust. In other words, don't buy this. You don't need all that. You just yeah. need this. Or the willingness to walk away. I love that yeah. one. When you got to the demo being a subject matter expert that the salesperson shouldn't just bring, as you say, the the, the, the clown car with all the experts in it, that they should know their actual product. I'm like, yeah. amen, hallelujah. Here's some data to prove yeah. it. And then yeah. this part about blocking the objection or anticipating the objection to buy you that is, is well done. And I, I just have a little script here. Uh, I massaged it a little bit, but this is where you guys were blunt. And I'm like, God, I love this book. Cause you were like, uh. The client asked for another demo or field trial, whatever it may be. And I changed the words a little bit, but this is essentially what you guys said in the book. The last thing I want to do is waste your team's time. And another demo isn't really going to tell you anything we haven't already showed you. Like, dude, I'm not. And then he said, but I also know that you aren't ready to move forward. That's bold. So let's talk about why that is and what I can do to help you make the best decision for your organization, whether that decision is buying from us or moving in another direction. And I was like, I had to like type that out because it was like, it was so like highly concentrated. Like there was so much stuff in that paragraph that was like, you know, you, like I said, I hope people look at that, read it, reread it because I was like, wow, that's a gutsy move. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. laden with, I love you. I understand. I want to help. And if I can't help, that's okay. We'll move on. Yep. And so finish that one yeah. off. Cause I, I thought yeah, that was we, interesting. We, we, um, so a, a couple things I'll say. One is like, we didn't invent this stuff, right? Just like Challenger, we just, we found that this is what gifted salespeople were doing. And when we surfaced it from the data, we, we kind of gave language to it. Like, here's the behavior. We named it. We gave it this framework and, and tried to tell a story that would help other people see what these, these really talented salespeople had kind of figured out on their own. It, no different from Challenger. You know, it's that whole lead steer effect. When the market starts to change, you look at what the people in front are doing differently, where they're going left, where they're going right because they're figuring it out before they're being taught to do so. And so, so that's a great example of, of what we found in the data. Um, and it's, it's what we, you know, we borrowed a page from um, uh, the, everyone's familiar with the concept of radical candor. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? It is radical candor. Radical candor is not about being aggressive or obnoxious or rude. It's about real, a deep empathy, but being, uh, being direct and forthcoming, right? 
And, and that is a, you, I, that's one of my favorite examples too, that you called yeah. out there. Yeah. Uh, and you think about that. Again, oh, it's very well, challenger-esque, isn't it? It is. It's taking it is. control piece. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And you know, I, I will say, you know, some people said, do you think challengers just do this jolt stuff naturally? And, and I think there's, I don't know, because we didn't, we did, when we cite challenger, we didn't study this, but I think it's reasonable belief because those are a lot of talented salespeople that are probably figuring out some of this stuff as well. I mean, I know some of the salespeople we interviewed as part of this research are challenger salespeople right. and they were, they didn't, they didn't call it the stuff we did, but they're like, oh yeah, I, that's, a, that's what I do. And, and then they could explain yeah. They're almost like subconsciously I, super competent. <laughs> I, I didn't see it as a binary thing, you know, challenger yeah, totally. adult. I saw it as like filling in some of the cracks. Do you know I what think to, right. the, the thinking piece? Right. It was one or the other. So no, let me it, catch it, my yeah. audience. What's that? Yeah, it's, I would say challenger is, is squarely in that beat the status quo playbook approach. Over jolt is all about overcoming indecision. But when you talk about the things like, you know, here we're talking about like taking control and building tension. What you just talked about is a kind of a good example of that, right? But we didn't talk about it in that way in Challenger. So you're right. There's definitely some bleed between those playbooks and some behaviors that are important in bold. So I, it's not an either or. It is, a, you know, fortunately, sales is hard. It's a do both. So yeah, I saw it. I saw I saw them as very complimentary. I wasn't sitting yeah. there reading your book, the book that you and McKenna wrote going, well, that doesn't make sense. I, it didn't <laughs> hit me. I'm like, oh, here's some of the cracks they're filling them yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just to catch up my audience before we round round it off yep. is that first of all, we're judging for that's the J for judging for indecision. What level of yep. indecision are they experiencing, right? Then you're going to position yourself where you're going to offer a recommendation. Yep. And then again, limiting the exploration. You don't need to see that Jedi mind trick. You just need to focus <laughs> on this. And then I'll let you the last one. Yeah. I really thought you pushed it over the top with the last one. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> all right. So the last one was uh, T, taking risk off the table. So taking risk off the table, again, remember the sources of indecision. We've already talked about, I don't know what to choose. That's all about offering your recommendation. We've already talked about, I haven't done enough homework. That's limiting the exploration is our, our counterpunch to that. What's our counterpunch when the customer's worried about not getting what they're paying for? That, that they're thinking, I don't know, Victor, like, yeah, the proof of concept, the demo, everything's great. Everyone's on board. Like, everyone loves you guys. You clearly beat the pants off your competitors. Like, we're in. But if this goes sideways, it's on me. And this is a big decision for our company. Well, what we've got to do there is we've got to de-risk the purchase. We've got to take some risk off the table. And, and we can do that in a whole number of ways. I think the simple one most people go to is like offering a, re, a refund or pro, you know an opt-out or whatever. Now, in some simple product uh, environments, that might be possible. But in most organizations, if we're selling complex solution, we don't offer that to our customers. So what else could we do? Well, I would think about this from a spectrum of really formal ways to um, to de-risk the purchase to very informal, but still kind of accomplish the same thing types of techniques. So on the formal side, I'll give you an example. This is not in the book. I, I, I learned about this just the other day. Um, a, man, a company that makes robotics uh, for manufacturers that I was talking to about this research, he, he'd read an early copy just like you. And we're talking about this and said, I've got a great way to take risk off the table he said, a lot of times when we come in and we're, our value prop is we help um, manual factories automate their operations. But what that means is teaching their people how to go from like swinging a hammer to actually dealing with a piece of robotics equipment, which is a very different job. So there's a lot of change management. There's a lot of training that goes into that. And for large organizations, these are really expensive robots and machines we put on the factory floor. And if somebody's not paying attention to training or they do something, you put the part in the machine the wrong way, it'll like total a half a million dollar piece of equipment like that. He said, what we figured out a couple of years ago, and we partnered with an insurance company, we offer an insurance package now that 
that guards against that happening for like a thousand bucks, they can replace the entire piece of equipment. Now you said the, the interesting thing is the training is so good. It almost never happens, but there are a couple of customers and we have missed case studies where something has gone wrong and they were at a thousand bucks, not like 300,000 bucks. And it was a total lifesaver because it was like, he told the story of this customer. It was the holidays. It was really busy and the assembly lines moving fast. And one of their workers um, just happened to like hit the wrong switch or do something. It totaled the machine, like in a heartbeat, brought the whole, but they were really swaying for a small business being out to 300,000 bucks for a really expensive piece of equipment versus a thousand dollar deductible, huge difference. Now he said they, they now package that with every single sale and nobody bats an eye. He said, we don't deal with that outcome uncertainty the way we used to because people don't sweat that anymore. It's like, okay, for a couple of percentage points on the basis points on the deal, I can add this insurance policy. It's a no-brainer. And he said, by the way, the insurer loves us too, because it's huge margin. Nobody ever <laughs> files a claim yeah. because the training's really good. So that's a formal example. Now, informally, there's lots of stuff we can do. Uh, I'll tell you another uh, uh, story. So big North American software company that we we worked with on this research, they participated. Their head of sales said, you know, now their CEO is a very well-known executive. Um, so they shall remain nameless, but you said, you know, for those big deals, there's like bet the company kind of deals where the customers, yeah, I know they're sweating it, right? Even at the CEO level, like if this goes sideways, it is going to be bad. <laughs> and so, um, you said one of the biggest confidence givers they can give to show their customer, you're not jumping out of this airplane without a shoot is, um, when they say, you know, our CEO takes on 10 customers every year where he personally sits in on every QBR. He's at the table. He will share with you his mobile phone number and he will, you could text him on the weekends. And he, if there's a problem, he swarms a problem. These are ones that he goes to the street and he talks about with our analysts and our investors, right? A signature customer, right? That you can't take that to the bank and cash it for any amount of money. But oh, he wait, said, what's, a Q, what's a QBR? I got to ask. Oh yeah. Like a quarterly business review. So, you know, okay. but he's sitting in on those, he's sitting on those, those meetings quarterly. He's on the working group. He's, he's plugged in. He can't do it. We have, thousands of customers. He only does it for 10 every year. He said, I've used that card to get some of our biggest deals over the fence where I knew nice. they were struggling with the risk is say, you know, we want to include you in this, this group. And he said, that was a huge difference maker. And he said, he's also used a little bit of urgency. Like, Hey, we, we've already got nine customers. We're going to do our, our Q, our Q4 earnings release. And our CEO is going to talk about the 10 customers he's working with. These are big logos. Like we're, this is great marketing for us. It's great marketing for you. But if you miss it, like the next chance to be in his group mm. of 10 is like next year, right? So you don't have to take us up on it, but you know, we thought it would be a nice value add for you. And he said, every single customer said, oh, like we're going to be, I can get them on speed dial. Like we're in. <laughs> so, Oh, I, I, I love it. By the way, limited risk. I think you should consider, you and McKenna should consider just doing a webinar on de-risking. Like, yeah. You know, just yeah. start really kind of uh, curating all the different strategies out there because I, I found that again, it's stuff you don't typically read about. Yeah. And no. you applied some flavors, but these two examples about the $1,000 deductible, the QBR, only 10 clients creates that little scarcity bit right there. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love that. You guys should do a, a webinar down in the future just on de-risking. Yeah, though, I, I agree. You know, it's funny because of all those, I think it's the de-risking, the taking risk off the table. When I talk to salespeople about it, they meet, oh, here's what we do or here's what we can right. do. Never thought of it this way. Now, here's That's the other funny. thing I would, I would say, Victor, there's a, uh, there's a role for the company here too. What you don't want to have happen is your salespeople are constantly going back and asking for permission to use some of these different techniques. What we should be focusing on in sales leadership 
is is actually creating a um, uh, a tool set of of de-risking options, and then you know packaging them, productizing them in case of that insurance policy. I agree. Training our people on them, coaching them to use it, so they're not constantly going to finance or product or their manager to ask for permission to do this stuff. But they know these are tools you can go to; they're already approved, you know, and and you can go uh, go and leverage them to get the customer off the fence. Now, if I put those those four together. You know, I think what we like about Jolt is like, you can remember the acronym, but much like spin selling, but also it speaks to what's happening here. You know, it's, we're jolting the customer out of their stuck, indecisive state and getting them to take action. We're, we're ultimately trying to do here is bridge the gap between intent uh, to action, between I want this to I bought this, right? And that is a big, that is a big journey. And we know a lot of deals um, end up in the graveyard uh, between I want it and I bought it. Putting this all together, and this will be my closing question because I, sure. I know you're a busy guy. The because I could talk to you for a long time, but there's so many <laughs> topics I want. Even on the AI side, I want to talk to you about other things, but yeah, we'll yeah. save that for some other time. The you know, as you put this project together, you're going through the book. You know, were there any like you know, like huh, I didn't see that one coming, or something that just stood out that didn't make it in the book? Yeah, no. So there's uh, there's some stuff that you know we don't actually we didn't talk about in this um, uh, this podcast. There's some stuff in the um, uh, we don't even talk about it when we present this like in a keynote or anything, but it's in the book. And I think it's super interesting. These are not, so I want to be careful here because these are not things I would tell salespeople to go do, but I would tell you that they're natural outcomes of having done all this stuff right. And what, I, uh, what I'm speaking specifically is uh, to is like kind of the audio signature of a high performer's call versus an average performer's call. So what we, what we like to say is high performer's call just sounds different. And, and that's kind of blindingly obvious, right? But let me be specific here. There are some audio characteristics in a blo- in a high performance call that were totally surprising to us, given what else is out there and what's talked about on LinkedIn about what we should and shouldn't do. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One, it turns out high performers actually talk more than than the customer. Um, and we always talk about like you want to talk less, you want to ask the question, let the customer go. But high performers actually talk more. Now the guidance is not just fill fill the airtime. Don't let the customer talk. The guidance is, or the takeaway should be when you are seen as a trusted expert that is delivering a lot of value, you earn the right. The customer wants to hear from you. You know, they, they, you were adding a lot of value. So again, it's more of an output than something I would tell people to go do. Here's another one, even more specific. We found that the, uh, that high performers actually, um, talk over the customer and interrupt them a lot more than average performers. Now that my mom told taught me, my boss taught me that was really rude to do. And so we were really surprised by that. But uh, but we dug into a little bit of the social science. There's like a couple of paragraphs or pages in the book we talk about this uh, uh, technique of cooperative overlapping. So you know the difference between a conversation with somebody where you're like, you know, they're not really listening to what I'm saying. There's some dead air or silence time. We found silence time. There's a lot of it on average performer calls. And it's just, it's actually like, uh, it's a good marker that, you're not engaged. You're not fully plugged in. High performance calls, they're they're finishing thoughts. You're, there's a lot of audio feedback, like not audio feedback in a bad way, but but verbal feedback. So it's when you're saying something, I'm like, yeah, oh, totally, yep, right on. And and you're finishing thoughts and you're jumping in, and it's like conversations between two old friends. And now again, what the yeah. guidance should be? Why I say it's an output, not an input, is I would not tell people that you're going to sell more by interrupting people. That's not the right takeaway. The right takeaway is when you are an expert, when you're trusted, when you are fully dialed in, that is a natural output of what that call is going to sound like afterward. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be sharing a lot of value and the customer wants to hear the value. You're going to be 
piling on, interjecting, uh, offering confirmation and, you know, expressions of, huh, that's interesting. Like while you're talking to the customer, again, the way your best friend would, if you were having a great engaged conversation with them. So I'm, I'm going to make a meta statement. You ready? Here comes a meta statement. Sure. <laughs> yeah. if, if somebody were to review this conversation we just had, they would see that I probably listened 20% of the time. You talked 80% of the time because I really wanted to hear what you had to say. And that, that goes to the positioning yourself. The second part on the cooperative overlapping, there's a couple of times where I stepped on you. For sure. I was that was excited. Great, it was a great right? conversation. So if somebody yeah. actually listened to this podcast, it's a perfect right? example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So sure. on that note, hey, give me give me the I know we're we're done with time here, but Matt, give these folks some indication where they can learn more about you. Sure. Buy the book maybe ahead of time, which yeah. I highly recommend. Go for it. Yeah. So um uh, go visit our website that we built around the book at jolteffect.com. And um if you do pre-order the book, uh send it to pre-orders at jolteffect.com. We're gonna be running a special event with some special guests like uh Dan He or sorry, so with Dan Pink, uh who's joining us um uh in uh, To Sell is Human. <laughs> to sell is human, obviously great book. So uh Pink is gonna be joining us uh for that event. We got a few other special guests, some surprise guests. Um uh and that's gonna be probably the early October timeframe. Give people a chance. Book comes out September 20th, sure. give them a chance to read it, digest it, then have a, a cut of conversation with some other uh, outside experts, give people a chance to ask questions uh, after they've been able to marinate in some of those ideas. But jolteffect.com is the website. You can learn more about where to pre-order. There's some going to be some free tools and resources on there. And then, of course, companies are, may want to know, hey, how do I get this? some of these skills and behaviors uh, you know, out there for my salespeople? So lots of different options about how to do it from like DIY self-service all, all the way to more formal kind of training and workshops and stuff like that. Love it. And if you want to find out more about Matt Dixon, you'll find his profile on LinkedIn. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio. Again, leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Pandora, Spotify. We're all over the place. Leave us some feedback. Love to hear what you think. After you do that, please go to jolteffect.com. Follow Matt's advice. Get the information. Buy the book. I'm just telling you, just buy the book. Uh, if there's some tools there, take advantage of that. And after you do that, check out the Sales Velocity Academy at salesvelocityacademy.com. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio, always reminding you, that selling ain't hard when you jolt them and you know how. Take care. Thanks, Victor. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 